0: Sarah had always found Thomas a very attractive man. He was tall, dark, handsome, but he was married. And so was she. But that didn't stop Thomas from coming on to Sarah. He would see her and he would continue to come on to her and even he tell her how beautiful she is. That even though her marriage was hard right now, he could make things better. That she deserved to feel alive. That she was beautiful. That she deserved to be loved That what she was feeling right now, she shouldn't feel, and she didn't have to, if she would just give in. She continued to resist. She continued to hold out, but months and months went on, and the barrage didn't stop. Her marriage was dry, it was dead, it was lifeless, but it didn't start out that way, and so she wondered, how could it have become like this? Is this what I would face for the rest of my life? Surely God didn't want me to be unhappy He would, he wants me to feel alive again. He doesn't want me to feel empty. It was during a particularly dry time in her marriage that her husband left for a month on business out of town. And Thomas continued to come on to her, telling her that nobody would know. And it would be their secret. That she knew that she really wanted it. That she could feel alive again. That she could feel beautiful and valued and meaningful. She knew she shouldn't. Sarah knew that she shouldn't, but she couldn't resist. It was late at night, and she gave in to Thomas' words. And it, as Thomas slipped in, they had sex. Unbeknownst to Sarah, Thomas's wife had known about his unfaithfulness, for Sarah wasn't the first. And she had followed them to Sarah's house and had seen. And so she reported the two of them to the local authorities. For, you see, for them... Adultery wasn't just immoral, but it was also illegal. And unbeknownst to Sarah, she wakes up that morning to have the authorities break into her house, kick in the door, and tear her half-naked from her bed, while Thomas, her, her lover who had sworn all of these vows, becomes a pragmatist and says, she forced me into it, she wooed me away from my wife, I was a faithful husband, and with her words she ensnared me, and she caught me up and dragged me away. The authorities grab Sarah and pull her out of her room and begin to drag her out through the alley and into the market, yelling that she's an adulterer, that she's guilty, that she's a prostitute, unfaithful. Sarah hangs her head in shame, feeling isolated, feeling alone, feeling guilty as she is, wondering how did she get here? How did she wind up here in front of everybody Guilty and ashamed, they told her that they were bringing her to a judge who would decide her fate, whether she would live or whether she would die. Today, we are going to talk about the seventh commandment. It says in Exodus twenty fourteen, you shall not commit adultery. You shall not commit adultery. And so if there's a big idea that I want you to take, if there's one thing that I want you to take from today, it's this. That God loves faithfulness. God loves faithfulness. And so if you've come and you're, you're far from Christ, you're saying, listen, I'm not really sure if I'm a Christian. I'm here checking things out. Um, I hope that today, as you listen in, I hope that you try on the glasses of Christianity. See, we all have a perspective. We all look through a set of lenses to make sense of the world. And so I hope today that you will put on the lenses, the worldview of Christianity, and see how it actually makes sense of marriage how to actually make sense of faithfulness and how it can empower you to be faithful. Now, for those of us that come that are Christians, my challenge is this, that you would remember why you're faithful and where your faithfulness comes from. So why you are faithful and where your faithfulness comes from. So we're going to look at three different questions um, real quick. We're going to ask why is faithfulness important? So why is faithfulness important? Second, we're going to actually... Go through and say, what does the seventh commandment actually mean? What does it actually say and what does it mean? And then we're going to look at how, how am I actually obedient in this? First thing I want to say is that um, this problem isn't isolated. Everybody in here has faced or is going to face um, immorality or the struggle with adultery on faithfulness. Some of the stats that I've seen is that 30 to 60% of all married couples were unfaithful. One or two of the couples were unfaithful at any given time. Uh, Anywhere from 30 to 60% of couples are unfaithful at some point in time. It says that 20 to 30% of females, females are unfaithful in their marital relationship, committing adultery, having extramarital sex, and 40 to 50% of males. 40 to 50% of, of guys that are married at some point in their marriage will commit adultery or will commit an act of extramarital sex. This problem isn't isolated, right? It's it's not like this, it's just a couple, but this has affected everyone. I'm sure all of us, I mean, we look at our culture and the way that our culture portrays marriage is that it's the old ball and chain. Is that you drag it around and that it enslaves and so the idea is that we rid ourselves of this old institution and we go and we, we liberate ourselves through seeking love in its purest form. And so this problem of unfaithfulness, it it affects everyone. It, it affects children, right? They, I mean, you see products of divorce. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm a product of, you know, my parents got divorced. They weren't unfaithful. But you see how, like, adultery will lead to divorce and it leads to brokenness and it, it affects children. So adultery affects all of us. The next thing is that the consequences for adultery, the consequences for unfa- unfaithfulness are are dire. Do you understand that adultery, it destroys things? One of the, the foundational books of the Bible is Genesis. Genesis literally means in the beginning, right? And so it's a it's an account of all the things that God has done, starting from the beginning. And so to understand who God is, you really need to understand the first couple chapters of the Bible. And the first thing that we realize in Genesis is that God is creator. Right? God has spoken and has created things. And so what that means is that the universe isn't empty, that it doesn't have uh, a random assortment of values, but instead God has planted and placed certain things that work a, a specific way. There's a rhythm through which God has created things. See, we we understand that there are consequences when we break something physically, right? So if you drink arsenic, you're going to die, right? I mean, we understand that there's a physical consequence when you do something physically. If you decide that you're Superman and you jump off a building and it's, you know, say 15 stories, you're not going to be Superman. You're going to fall to the ground and you're probably going to die. There are physical consequences. We know these things. But for some reason, we don't think that there are spiritual or moral consequences. We don't think that God has actually created the universe in a rhythm that operates in a certain way that if you don't flow in, in rhythm with it, that it destroys. God has made the world that faithfulness will lead to our flourishing. It will lead to our benefit. And so when we disobey, there are consequences. It it destroys us. Some of those things is that when we refuse to use sex as God has intended it, it dehumanizes us. Right? We see in Genesis that God says, I've made you in my image. And so we are created in God's image, and part of what that means is that we are called to be faithful because God is faithful. And so when we when we refuse to be faithful, we start to desecrate the image that He's made us in, and it actually dehumanizes us. Because all of it does is it makes us selfish, is that we use other people for our benefit. And so it, it mars our ability to be givers. Instead it 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 begins to create a selfish taking mentality in us. And so not only does it do this to us, so those that are unfaithful, it does it to them, but it also does it to the people that they are being unfaithful with, is it tells them that you are just an object that is only good for my use. You're not a whole person that deserves to be loved and served, but instead I'm going to isolate this one part and use that because that's what you're good for. And it teaches people that they're objects to be used rather than people to be loved. And so the consequences are, are dire is that it dehumanizes us. Not only does it dehumanize us, but it also tears, parts, tears lives apart. You see it. When people commit adultery, it, it, it pulls out the rug of trust. And so when children are raised up in that, or when families are tried to be founded upon that, there's nothing that can be built upon when there's no trust. And so unfaithfulness destroys the ability for a foundation of trust. It leads to deep insecurity as people wonder, am I enough? Am I really valuable? Am I really meaningful? And so it will create deep insecurity where people won't be able to flourish because there's always a self-doubt. Am I really enough? Or should I be like this? Or should I be like this? And it causes them to perform and to try to be somebody that they're not. And so it creates deep insecurities. Proverbs 6.32, it says this. It says, he who commits adultery lacks sense. He who does it destroys himself. The Proverbs are saying that if you commit adultery, it is like suicide. You're destroying yourself. You're tearing apart yourself. Now, I want to I want to push back here. For those that perhaps say, listen, I'm not really sure if God's real. I'm not really sure if I believe this. If you don't believe that God is real, I don't understand how you can make sense of faithfulness. Because, you see, if God's not real, then there's no objective standard by which we are governed. Faithfulness is merely a human concept that's used in society to help build things. It's not really objective morally. And, and so all I'm doing is re- if if God's not real, then there's really no ground for me to be faithful. Because I say, well, listen, I'm just rejecting a a you know a cultural assumption that it's, it should be good. But you see, if God is real, if God is real, then it makes sense of faithfulness because it says that God has weaved into the fabric of the universe faithfulness. And it is objective morally and that it's good for our souls to actually be faithful because it makes us more like our creator. Do you see how belief in God actually makes sense of our of our intuition? We know that faithfulness is good. We know that we ought to be faithful and God and belief in God actually demonstrates and puts out on display what we already know that faithfulness is good. So. I want to talk real quick. Um, another instance of why why we should be faithful is that we need to understand marriage. So when Genesis opens up, you have the first portrait of marriage. And often, often our culture says, "This is why do you get married, right?" This is the question you know you ask people that are about to get married. Why why are you getting married? And often the answer is, "Well, I love them. I love them." and often what's meant is I'm infatuated with them. Like, I'm in this very emotional state where I am, like, caught up in this other person and I can't see, like, being without them. Which, I mean, you, you should want to be infatuated. You should want to care about that person. You shouldn't be like, listen, I can't stand to spend the rest of my life with them. But I I should, so I guess I'm going to. You know, so you, you should desire to be with the other person, right? But here's the thing. If that's just your pursuit of marriage, if that's just your understanding of marriage, what happens when you don't feel that way anymore? What happens when you fall Out of love. Because if the purpose of life is for your happiness, then you'll just discard the marriage, and you'll just put it under the rug and say, well, I don't feel this anymore, and they're not meeting my needs, or they're not meeting my expectations, and so why should I stick in this? But instead, if you realize that God created marriage for something bigger than just our personal happiness. God created marriage, and he says, listen, it's not good that man is alone. So God made Adam, and he says, it's not good that man is alone, and so he took out of Adam a rib. Isn't it so interesting because God could have just given Adam all the emotions and all the feelings and all the thoughts that a woman had and just made him like this super man woman, you know, like this, 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 this single person that has all of these feelings. And and it would probably be very confusing for him, you know, until he sorted them all out. But, uh, but he could have done that, but he didn't. Right. Instead, he took a rib out. He took a rib out and he, he created another person. He created another person. Why? Why did he do that? He did it because there's something about being in a community that reveals who God is. God we believe that God is in Trinity, right? God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. But yet He's one God. And it's a mystery, okay? It's not a contradiction, it's a mystery. But this mystery helps us understand our our lives and how we operate and our longings, is that in marriage God creates us to be both different, complement, counterpart, different, but yet he makes them together. He says one flesh, right? And what that one flesh means is it's not like this metaphorical category. Well, like I guess they're like, I I see them as one flesh. No, he's stating a fact that you are one flesh. You are one organism. You are unified together. And so divorce is more akin to chopping your legs off, taking a part of your body off than it is akin to ending a legal agreement that when two people come together, they become one in God's sight, one organism, one flesh. He says, and the reason is that it shows what God is like. Marriage isn't about you. It's bigger. It's about showing what God is like. And not only is it about the Trinity and understanding God's diversity and his unity, it's also about understanding Christ in the church. You see, before time began, God said, I'm going to show how much I love my people by making marriage. Jesus says that a man will love his wife the way that Christ loves the church and laid himself down. And so do you see God in marriage is is putting a play, is putting a play on, and he's casted roles. Okay, and, and it's really important to understand that if you've ever, if all of us at some point in time, we've been a part of something that's bigger than ourselves, right? Whether it's a team, whether it's a group, something, we've been a part of something that's bigger than ourselves, that it's not really about us. It involves us, but it's not about us. It's bigger. And that's what this is, is marriage is bigger than us. And he's saying, I am casting roles right now for a play that I'm going to put on display to everyone. And I've cast the man to play the role of Christ. And I've casted the woman to play the role of the church right and and so while that might be hard while that might be difficult that's what God has casted and that's what he's called us to play that we might put on display his love and his goodness and his mercy to others the idea is that when people look at your marriage they should see the way that Christ loves his bride and they should see the way that the church is called to respond to Christ's love so do you, i hope you see that marriage is bigger than just i i feel in love and so i want to marry someone Because if that's the view, it will fall apart very quickly. Because you are you can't promise to feel a certain way. You can't, right? It's like, I promise I'm never going to have a headache again. That's not going to work. You can't promise a feeling. And so you can't promise that I'm always going to feel loving feelings towards you because you're not. And so you have to realize that your promise is deeper than that. It's an agreement to say, I am going to be faithful to you. I'm going to love you despite how I feel, despite what happens, because there's something deeper than my feelings that are a part of this. I hope you understand that marriage is extremely important because if you don't understand marriage from a biblical portrait, you won't understand sex, right? And so the next thing I want to is like, why did God give sex? Because often the church has kind of had this idea in the, in the history of the church that, like, God, you know, made a sandwich and turned around and was like, what are you doing? You know, like, what, get off of her. You know, like, no, God created sex. And, I mean, he wasn't surprised by it. He wasn't like, what are you doing, Adam? You know, like, he made that and he said it was good. Right? And the reason that he He made it is that he He made sex for several different purposes. Right? He made sex to be something that is to be fruitful. He says, go and be fruitful and multiply. Right? So that God's glory in his image would be spread across the earth. That's what he told Adam and Eve, is that you will multiply so that my glory might be seen all throughout the entire creation. He says also, so it's not just for the possibility of procreation of like making little yous, you know, that reflect God, but it's also, it's also for, it's also for faithfulness. Is it God told Adam and Eve, he says, you will, you will leave and you will cleave. So you will leave all the things you had held on to before, and you will come together. You will hold fast. And part of the element of becoming one flesh is that, is there's a sexual element to it, is that you literally come together. God made the parts to fit. And so you come together, and you become one. And sex is an aid in being faithful, is it helps to glue you together. It helps to cement. And anybody that's had it, I mean— our sexuality does that. It binds us to things and to people. Whatever you use your sexuality with, it will bind you to that. There's a commitment. That's why people that are so in love and are infatuated, they make these promises. Like I'm going to love you forever. I'm going to. Our love will never end. You know. And they're infatuated, so they make these 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 promises. You know. Like our sexuality is meant to bind us, to unify us, to glue us together. But not only that, but. The Song of Solomon. If you ever read the Song of Solomon, you can't read it without like blushing because it's so vivid. And it it talks about the love that a man has for his wife and the, the romantic and the sexual love. And it says that God made sex to be fun within the confines of marriage, right? He says, go enjoy, have fun, you know, like, you know, fill yourself. He says, get drunk with love, you know, like, I mean, drink until you can't drink anymore, like, have your fill of it. But the reason that God gave it in marriage is because if it's not used in marriage, it's selfish, not selfless no matter what it is, sex is made to be an act of life giving rather than life taking and when sex is used outside of marriage, it's always an act of taking, not giving because in it when I'm using sex outside of marriage i'm saying I'll share one part of my life with you, but nothing else i'm not willing to share financial or economic or or social or um, spiritual. Or, you know, emotional, I'm hiding these other elements from you. And so I'm only going to take this one area. And so we use people. We use people. So sex got, sex is a gift from God that he's given to be used within marriage because outside of marriage, it destroys. Outside of marriage, it creates commitment where commitment shouldn't be. And it, it hurts. It hurts. And you see, when when we take this idea of marriage and we take this idea of sex and we merge them together, it leads to our flourishing. The Bible talks about human flourishing. And so what it says is it says when we are in line with the way that God has created the world and the way that He has made the world to, in its rhythm, that we flourish. It doesn't mean that it's easy, right? It doesn't mean that like once I do this, everything is great. No. But like once we do this, when we submit to this idea, when we submit to this pattern, we will begin to operate as God has created us to operate. And we will begin to flourish the way that He has made us to flourish. We'll be realigned. We'll be realigned. So, Why? Why should we be faithful? Because we should be faithful because it will destroy us if we're not. We should be faithful because it reveals something bigger than us. It reveals God. So I want to take next time, and I just what does the seventh commandment actually mean, right? What does it mean? So we we talked about why we should be faithful. Now we're going to talk about what in the world does it mean. Um, now, adultery literally means to be physically, like to physically cheat upon someone else. So, like having extramarital sex. But it doesn't just mean that, right? It's it's not that like it just says physical adultery. And well, if I haven't committed physical adultery, then I guess I really haven't committed adultery. And also, you notice there's no loopholes, right? He doesn't say you shall not accept. When you're tired or when you're lonely or when you're moody or when, you know, when you feel like it or when your spouse isn't giving you attention or when times are rough, you know, there's no exceptions. You shall not actually means that. You shall not. And so it's important that we realize that because we have a lot of justifiers in our mind that just pop up and say, Trevor, you just don't know what I'm going through, man. God, you don't, if you saw what I was going through, you would say, oh, you're accepted from that. You're exempted. And and so it's important that God actually means what he says. You shall not means you shall not, under any circumstances, commit adultery. You shall not be unfaithful because you've made a covenant. You've made an agreement with with your spouse and with God, and you shall not break that. So it includes physical adultery, but it's more than that. It includes emotional adultery and relational adultery. So maybe you're saying, what in the world are you talking about emotional adultery or relational adultery? Emotional adultery, and, and it can happen with male or females, but traditionally it usually happens more with females, is that they use, we use others to meet our emotional needs. So maybe your spouse isn't giving you the attention or the affection or the desire that you want. And so you go to a coworker and that coworker makes you feel special. They make you feel unique. They make you feel valued, like you're important. And so you begin to feed into that relationship. And that relationship stirs in your heart and you begin to find the affection that you were meant to have towards your spouse, you begin to have it towards someone else. Do you realize that physical adultery rarely starts with saying, oh, they're just gorgeous and, and just going for it? It usually starts at the emotional level when someone begins to give in and they allow their heart to go someplace and wander. And, and this happens not just with people, but often this can happen with books and with movies. You know, ladies... You read a romance novel, and that novel lists up your expectations. And you say, man, my man just doesn't do this. He doesn't love me like this way. And so your emotions begin to be entwined and entrapped by this ideal of what should happen, of what could happen. Not only that, but movies. I mean, movies like Fifty Shades of Grey, right? People go to see these movies. Why? Why? Why do do we go see that? Because we think that it's tantalizing because it's going to thrill us. But what it really does is it says that... What, what those what movies like that say is that this is what it means to be really in love, is it's the thrill. But what they don't show is what happens in year 5, year 10, year 15 of marriage, right, when the hunt is gone, when the infatuation is past. And they create in people this idealistic, you know, this, this ideal and this surface-level portrayal of what marriage is, of what love is, and then, they, and then people begin to ask themselves, am I really missing out on the real thing? It creates a deep discontentment and people say, man, you know, my marriage just maybe isn't, it isn't what it should be because I don't know if I feel that way or it doesn't look like that. And so they begin to have these doubts in their mind of saying, well, maybe marriage isn't for maybe this person isn't because I'm not feeling the way that I think I should feel. And so you're committing emotional adultery because you're going through and you're cheating on your spouse because you're putting your heart someplace that it's, that it shouldn't be. And you're sharing your affection and your emotion with someone or something that it shouldn't be shared with. And long before that will lead you, man, that is clear as day. That's adultery, and it's going to lead you to physical adultery. You will begin to act on it. For out of the heart, our actions proceed. But it's not only emotional adultery, but there's also relational adultery. right? And sometimes this is tied to emotional adultery. Sometimes it's not. But the scriptures talk about that your priorities, your God-given priorities is that you're called to put God first above everything and everyone. And that's unashamedly like what God says is that I am first. And if you put anything above God, it will destroy you. It will, because you'll use it and it can't fulfill you. Listen, your job makes a really cruddy God. So does your spouse. They're not really good gods. You know who makes a good God? Jesus. He makes a really good God. God's to be first. Then your spouse is to be second. Second. We see often what happens in a marriage is that somebody says, well, whether intentionally or unintentionally, somebody else gets that second priority. Maybe it's a parent. You know, they've they've you've been really close with that parent and they just have that role and you haven't actually been able to leave. You haven't been able to leave. And so instead of your spouse actually being second, your parent is. And your spouse gets ousted to the side. Maybe it's a child. Maybe instead of actually loving your spouse second, you've put children above. And can I tell you, oftentimes people are divorced when they're empty nesters because their whole marriage was about the children. And they didn't realize that, and their children are probably pretty selfish because of it, because they think the whole world revolves around them because their parents' marriage revolved around them. Rather than realizing that, listen, you're called to have a Christ-centered marriage, not a child-centered marriage. And so, relational, maybe it's a child, maybe it's a coworker, maybe it's a friend, and, and they get preference and they get pick over your spouse. So, relational adultery. Right When you put somebody or something else in front of the prior that your spouse should be in. So do you see adultery, how it has many different layers? It's not just this, but adultery is both negative and positive. Right. So you shall not commit adultery also means you shall seek faithfulness. And can I tell you, I think this is the most challenging part of the command. Is it often we say, well, check that, didn't commit adultery. But let me ask this, have you sought faithfulness daily in your marriage, in your relationship? Have you daily sought to celebrate, to enjoy, to rejoice in the gift that your spouse is? Because that's what the command, that's the heart of the command. Is it saying that God loves faithfulness and that God desires that his people would seek faithfulness as he seeks it? And do you want to know the prevention for adultery? If you're saying, man, I don't know how to stop, how do I not do this? Seek faithfulness, seek to celebrate your spouse, seek to love your spouse daily. And if you do that, you will begin to delight in them and you won't have eyes for others because you'll rejoice in them daily. So it's both positive and negative, negative and positive. It also includes all kinds of different forms. So adultery, just as as murder is kind of like the, the highest category in all the other sins, whether it's rage, bitterness, frustration, all these other sins kind of fall underneath that category of murder, so too adultery is the top end, and all these other sins fall underneath it, whether it's premarital sex, whether it's pornography, whether it's masturbation, whether it's homosexuality, whether it's you know pedophilia, whether it's incest, all these other forms of sexual immorality, of fornication fall underneath adultery. Why? I mean we've already talked, but like they're selfish. They're selfish. When you begin to watch pornography, it will destroy you. It will destroy you because what it teaches you is that a woman's only good for your taking, and it objectifies women. It objectifies women and it teaches. It. You're not able to relate to a woman as a person anymore or to a man as a person. But you, instead, you begin to see them as an object to be used. And it's such a vicious cycle. It's such a vicious cycle because it enslaves a person and then it brings massive guilt. and And they beat themselves up and then they fall again once they think that they're okay. And it creates this cycle over and over again. Premarital sex destroys, right, because it's taking it, saying, listen, I will share this part of my life with you, but I'm not going to share every other part. I want to read a quote from C.S. Lewis. He says this, the monstrosity of sexual intercourse outside of marriage is that those who indulge in it are trying to isolate one kind of union, the sexual, from all other kinds of union, which were intended to go along with it and make up the total union The Christian does not mean that there is anything wrong about sexual pleasure any more than about the pleasure of eating. It means that you must not isolate that pleasure and try to get it by itself any more than you ought to try and get the pleasure of taste without swallowing and digesting, by chewing things and spitting them out again. God loves the pleasure that sex brings, but he says if you isolate it from the covenant and the union that I have made in marriage... You will begin to destroy yourself and destroy others. And I, I've seen it. I've seen it. You can tell when people when when we all, when we engage, it hurts us. We were not made to operate in that. So what does the seventh commandment mean? It means a lot. It means you should not commit physical adultery, emotional adultery, relational adultery. It means that you shall not just not do it, but you not commit adultery, but it also means that you should seek faithfulness. And it, it includes, so lest us say, well, listen, I'm not married, so this doesn't include me. Yes, it does. It includes all forms of sexual immorality, whether you're struggling with, with pornography and masturbation and, and you're training, because th- that trains your mind to take rather than to give. And then when sex comes, you will be a selfish lover, and you will take pleasure rather than giving it. And so it will train you. And so adultery includes all kinds of forms of sexual immorality. Last I want, I want to talk about what does Jesus say about it, right What does Jesus say about adultery in matthew five twenty seven through thirty Jesus says this He says, "You've heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a, everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For It is better that you lose one of your members." Than that your whole body go into hell. Than that your whole body go into hell. Three things I just want to point out real quick. Jesus says that adultery is primarily an attitude of the heart. That adultery begins in the heart. It begins with a discontentment and saying, I need, I deserve, I want. And then it leads forth to action. It leads forth to action. That it starts in the heart. He says, second, that it's It's drastic, and it requires drastic action to fight against. Notice he says, you should be so willing to get rid of this that you should be willing to tear your eye out, to cut off your hand. Now, obviously, those don't work, right? We just said that Jesus says it's a heart issue, so tearing out your eye or cutting off your hand doesn't solve your heart problem, right? But what he's emphasizing here is the drastic nature that you need to be willing to take if you want to overcome this because this will enslave you. Sexuality is powerful. God made it to be powerful because it can be either be powerfully used for good to bring wholeness in life and life and healing or it can be powerfully used for evil to destroy and tear apart and bring down. And so God says if you want to be rid of this, you need to do whatever it takes. I first watched pornography when I was probably nine. I didn't know what it was. I was nine, and so I saw Playboy and thought, PlayStation and Game Boy, this is going to be great. You know, and like had no clue what I was watching. (laughs) And so clicked on this thinking like this is going to be the best game station ever. And, And clicked on it, and my little world was rocked, right? My little world was just flipped upside down. From the time I was nine all the way through high school, struggling watching pornography, struggling knowing that it was wrong, seeing the guilt and the shame and the isolation being put upon me, but yet not knowing how to get rid of it, not knowing how do I fight this, how do I get free. And we all, I think all of us struggle. All of us have some kind of temptation where we struggle with and we can relate. And I want to tell you that there's hope. God can free you. I haven't watched porn. I haven't seen porn since I was 19. It's been seven years that I've been free. It doesn't mean that we're all good. There's still a daily battle, a daily struggle to say, I will not look at this. I will not, you know, like Job says, I've made a covenant with my eyes that would not look lustfully upon a woman. And, you know, one of the things that healed me is confession is that I said, listen, I'm not going to isolate myself anymore. But instead, I'm going to bring this to the light. I'm going to, because what the enemy does is he isolates you and he says, You're alone. Nobody else does this. Look at how wicked you are. Nobody could love you. God doesn't love you. And so I brought this into light. I confessed. I came to my youth pastor and I said, Hey, I'm struggling with this. Like, and I, not only did I confess, but I repented as I sought to fight it. And I walked in community. Can I tell you, if you're seeking to fight this on your own, I'm not saying it's impossible, but it's near impossible. God didn't design for you to fight this on your own, that you were made to come into community. And so I hope that you know that you're loved and that this is a safe place for you to come, for you to confess, for you to repent, for you to have brothers and sisters that love you, that will walk with you through your struggle. That God knows and that he loves you. He loves you. But are you willing to do whatever it takes? Or are you still going to be stuck in justifying that it's okay for me to do this, that it's all right, and, and keep it in secret? Or are you willing to bring it to light? Because until you hate it enough, to where you'll bring it to light, it will continue to have a place in your heart. And it will continue to feed and to fester and to grow until it will lead you. And I promise you, sexual immorality will lead you to a place that you never knew you got there. Right? Like we talked about with Sarah, there's no way that she thought I was going to wind up like this. And so too, you won't think that I would ever wind up like this or in this place. If you don't hate it enough to confess it, then it will continue to grow in your life. Jesus says it is dire and you need to take drastic action to fight against it and the third thing that he says is he says that there are serious consequences for such sin that there are serious consequences for such sin he says that that it's better to lose one member than the whole body to go into hell often we don't talk about hell and i think practically most christians most christians are like oh i believe in hell but really practically we don't we don't really believe that there's a place that those who are separated from god go for eternity And Jesus says this right here. He says, listen, the result of this is separation from me, right? Those who commit adultery, right? And what Jesus is not saying is that those in Christ, we are forgiven. But outside of Christ, when we sin, we are separated from him. And so he is saying, listen, especially, I mean, there's all kinds of different ones that he could have talked about and he could have used for hell. I mean, murder, like, we just talked about murder. Jesus doesn't mention hell when he mentions murder. Not saying that they don't go, like, that murders don't go, but, like, he talks about sexual morality, and he talks about that the consequences for adultery, the consequences for breaking, is that you are separated from God, right? Is it destroys, right? Because unfaithfulness does that. It breaks trust. It breaks relationships. Why? The primary thing is because every time we commit adultery, every time we commit sexual immorality, is that it's not just against someone. It's against God. And I kind of tell you that that's the first thing that really stuck me when I was a Christian, when I became a Christian at the age of 15, was that my sin wasn't just against other people. Because, I mean, I think everybody knows, yeah, I shouldn't do this because it's hurting so-and-so, it's hurting that person, or it's hurting this person. But when you become a Christian, the Holy Spirit lives in you, and God himself resides in you and helps you to see that your sin isn't just against people, but it's against God. And that's the first thing that David said. David, right, the king of Israel, who says it's a man after God's own heart, he committed adultery with one of his his warriors' wives and had him killed with Uriah. And so he has he commits adultery. He murders and then you know. And after this, when he's confronted, when Nathan confronts him, what does he say? He says, "Against you and you only, God, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight." Do you realize that that adultery and our sexual immorality is primarily against God? That it wounds His heart. That it destroys our relationship with Him. That he loves us deeply. That story that I began at the beginning about Sarah and Thomas, that's a backdrop. That's my imagination of what could have happened before John 8 the woman who's caught in adultery with Jesus. Sarah is the woman brought by the Pharisees who come and they throw her at the feet of Jesus. Guilty, ashamed, not knowing what's going to happen, whether she's going to live or whether she's going to die because she had fallen and given in. And the Pharisees asked Jesus, right? They used her as a trap to get to Jesus. And and they were trying to, to pigeonhole Jesus and get him to do something to where the, the crowd was going to sway and people were going to stop following him. And, and they say, the law says that we should stone her. What do you say, Jesus? What do you think? Should we stone her? Should we let her live? What do you think? Jesus, drawing on the ground, looks up at them and says, you who haven't sinned, cast the first stone. And, and goes back, starts riding the sand. And one by one, starting with the oldest, which I think is important, they begin to drop their stones. And they begin to walk away. And her with her face in the ground, still there, Jesus comes after everyone has left, being the only one who is still there who could have thrown a stone because he's without sin He lifts her head and he says, is there no one here to condemn you? And she says, no. What did Jesus say? He says, neither do I condemn you. Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Do you know why Jesus was able to free her? Why he was able to give her grace? Because she was guilty and God is just. And so his, her crime should have been punished. Do you know the reason that he was able to show show grace to her and the reason that we're able to have grace is because several chapters later in John, there's another sentencing that happens. And instead of stones, they use three spikes and a cross. And instead of being guilty, the person was innocent. And, instead of, and, and this time, they didn't hold back their accusations. They didn't walk away. Instead, they condemned Jesus. And do you see that Jesus took her adultery? The reason that he was able to forgive the adulterers because he took her punishment upon himself is that he became like the adulteress that she might receive grace and that she might receive freedom. And so I hope for you, whether you've come in and whether you are the Pharisee and you're saying, I want to throw a stone or whether you are the person caught in adultery and saying, I'm guilty. I hope today that you realize that we all need God's grace, that every single one of us has sinned against God. Every single one of us has said that, God, you're not enough. Instead, I will chase other lovers, whether it's my work, whether it's my, whether it's my friends, whether it's just pleasure. I will chase other things because I believe that they will satisfy me better than you, and we've all committed adultery against God. But God is just, and he punishes his son instead of punishing us, that we might receive grace that we might receive love. So my application for this sermon, what I want you to take away, if there's one thing, is that you are not going to be changed to be a faithful wife, a faithful husband, a faithful servant of our Lord Jesus Christ by following principles, by following sayings. The way that you are changed is by beholding God's glory and beholding his faithfulness through his son Jesus. Do you see when you see, when you get a picture, when you get a glimpse of God's faithfulness on the cross, when you realize that He will never leave you nor forsake you, that despite the times that you turn from Him, He will continue to pursue you. He will continue to win your heart. When you see that, that changes you. That transfixes your gaze upon Him and it melts your heart. And so do you want to know how to be faithful? How do you not commit adultery? Fix your eyes upon the one who is faithful to you. Remember how faithful Jesus was, that he went to death rather than to betray you. Rather than to commit adultery, he faced eternal separation from his father that you might not face the separation that your adultery brings. Know his love for you. If you haven't accepted Christ, I pray that you would open your heart and that you would allow his love to flood in that he would reconcile you and bring you back, that your adultery would not separate you from God. Walk in his grace, walk in his love. Let us pray together. Jesus, thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for your love. I pray, God, for for us that this would transform our hearts, that you would melt us and that we would fall in love with you, Christ, that you would make us to be faithful men and faithful women that pursue you with everything that we have, that daily celebrate you, celebrate spouses, celebrate others around, then instead of just saying, I I haven't committed adultery, instead we would say, I have sought faithfulness. I have celebrated and loved others that we might give ourselves away rather than seeking to be selfish and take from others. We love you, Christ. It's in your name we pray. Amen.